Welcome to Noble Warrior. This is a place where entrepreneurs talks about what it takes to create a purpose-driven life. We're going to talk about mindset, mental models, actionable tactics, such that you can go out and create your own purpose-driven life. My name is C.K. Lin, former PhD researcher from UCLA. I've been a director of uh, University of California. I've been a startup executive. I've been an executive coach. I'm on a quest to create a life of purpose and meaning and joy and fulfillment. My next guest is a leukemia survivor. He's an author. He's a coach. Just being through the, the, the ups and downs of life. And I'm so pleased to have George Kansas with us. Thank you so much for being here, George. Thank you, CK. It's great to be here. Really enjoying, I'm enjoying this. Yeah, thank you. So why don't we actually jump right into it? Being a leukemia survivor, you being speaking to groups of cancer survivors everywhere. Your role is to help them find new meanings and new purpose and new light. Having gone through or having faced rather death or you know, the possibility of death. So I'm curious to know, there's probably a parallel lessons that you can share with us, given the COVID situations going on. People are looking at their businesses, need to reinventing themselves, need to watch out for their physical safety, need to look at relief safety, right? Giving the social distancing and staying at home. So I'm curious to know if you can tell us what have you learned having gone through leukemia twice, what you can share with them? Hmm. Great question. Thank you, CK. What's important, I would say, as a context was that some of the things that I learned as a result of the healing experiences were as much affirmations of ways I had approached life long before any diagnosis of illness. And why that's important is because have, I, I had worked with athletes and C-level executives before I ever was sick and essentially teaching them the same thing, the same things. And what was really potent for me is the healing experiences affirmed for me that these philosophies, these ways of being, these axiom that I was living by were on the right track. And while I probably, I may have preferred not to have such dramatic affirmations, they were potent nonetheless. And how they're relevant to right now, for instance, one of the one of the things I always lived by was the universe always puts me exactly where I need to be. That's just something I always used to say, meaning that would force me, no matter what it felt or looked like, that belief, that philosophy always forced me to look at whatever situation I was in as an opportunity to find more of me. So even if it felt like this is horrible, but if I know that the universe puts me exactly where I need to be, then I know that my purpose is meant to be served here somehow. Just as an example with the hospital example, I was diagnosed with leukemia. I was diagnosed at a stage of, of the disease where in my, the entirety of my bone marrow had been consumed by cancer. So literally I had no bone marrow where bone marrow is supposed to be. And I remember my sister at the time, I was about five days into the hospital, five out of 28 day stay. 
where my sister was like, why is this happening to you? You just started a charity. You're doing all this good work. You're working with really important people, blah, 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 blah. And really sad for me and not understanding why this was. And I reached into that belief, that knowing of mine, that if the universe puts me exactly where I need to be, why am I here? And I, without even hesitating, I said to her, because I can give this experience a voice. I've been speaking professionally. I've been traveling around the world. I've been writing books. I can create something from this experience that absolutely, that actually helps people. And that sense of purpose, just from that place, I brought a different version of myself, like a really purposeful version of myself to my healing. I brought my meditation into the hospital. I set up an altar. I, I did all of my practices right there. I brought every resource my of my conscious, my spiritual, my physical, every resources I could bring to bear on that purpose. And knowing and having a knowing in me that I would tell this story someday made made a huge difference. I remember one time three o'clock, I was all immunocompromised. I had no immune system. I had no white, healthy white blood cells in my system. So I couldn't touch anybody. I couldn't come into contact with anybody. What's going on now? But one night, three o'clock in the morning, I'm wheeling myself through the hospital corridors, masks, gloves, whole PPE outfit, my chemotherapy pole in one hand and my blood transfusion pole in the other wheeling through the hospital. And I rounded a corner and I almost collided with one of the interns charged with my care. And she's like, Mr. Kansas, what are you doing out of your room? I said, I'm, I was going stir crazy in my room. I had to get out and get some exercise and see the parallels to what's going on now. And she says, I have to tell you, you are one of the healthiest people in this hospital. Now, mind you, I had no bone marrow. I was really in trouble. My whole body is consumed with cancer. But she could tell underneath my mask that I was smiling. And she said, why are you always so happy? And I said, now why, but how? Yeah, right. <laughs> how, right? Yeah. I said, this is going to make a great speech someday. And she was just blown away. That was my perspective. And that was authentic. Like, I really was... I CK, did you ever read the book by Victor Frankl, Man's mm -hmm. Search for Meaning? Yeah. Beautiful book. Yeah. And I remember hearing a, a mentor of mine, just a beautiful human being, a Zig Ziglar, told the story of how Victor Frankl, when he was giving a, a graduation speech, said to the, the, the graduates, I I have you and I have never met, but I've stood before you and delivered this speech ten thousand times. Mm. And Viktor Frankl reflected later on that vision, that image of him sharing this wisdom while he was in the concentration camps of Auschwitz, Nazi Germany. She, he said that the vision of him teaching what he was learning from that experience kept him alive. That was his yeah. purpose. Yeah. And I remember that so vividly. And I remember remembering that in the hospital yeah. and yeah. thinking, why else would this be happening to me of the people whose ear I have, the, the leaders who I coach and the thought leaders and the conversation leaders that I influence? That's why this is happening to me. Mm. And yeah, I just believe that. Yeah, what a beautiful story. <clears throat> Thank you. It's easy to teach theories and wisdom while you know, everything's going great. When you're in Hawaii, everything's you know sunny and there's 
waiters giving you mai tais, whatever drink that you love, you with your significant other on the sandy beach. It's really easy to preach about resilience and adversity and grit. But when you're in the middle of the hurricane, as you did, you literally were facing compromised immune system. It's probably very painful every step of the way. You had to will yourself into taking the next step. That's the true testament of your faith, right? <clears throat> so I, you had an image in your mind that, hey, everything I'm doing, going through right now is for a reason, and I'm going to make a speech one day. So that's a concrete vision that you had. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, how did you deal with the doubt? The, what if I don't make it? The, oh my God, this is so painful. Please just let it end. Just whatever the neurotic thoughts is going on in your mind. And I asked this question, not specifically to you, but for the people who are listening or watching this right now, who may be thinking like, oh my God, so painful. My spouse and I were fighting at home because we can't see anyone else. My business is whatever. My 40% of my revenue is gone because of COVID or my physical safety. I'm concerned for my parents are old and they, they're also getting stir crazy as well. During those moments of test, how were you able to qualm the internal chaos that you continue to see that vision that, you know, that you, you wanted to turn into a speech that inspires people, give them hope. You know what I mean? Yeah. I love the question, CK. The, this is so important, this question, because a lot of, there may have been a time when a younger version of me would have said something like, just hold on to that picture of that good picture, that picture of the future that you're holding and just hold on to it, no matter what thought comes up. And just that you may have heard the expression, fake it till you make it. And there may have been a time when I would have said, yes, and fake it till you make it, just hold on and plow through. And, and what I've learned is what my wife and I, Tracy, we work together and in, in our work, we say, don't fake it till you make it, feel it to reveal it. And why we say that is because pretending that those feelings, that fear, that doubt, that disillusionment, that frustration, that anger, pretending that those emotions aren't there in my belief is that actually doesn't help, that it actually holds us back. There's great freedom in recognizing the doubt, not indulging it, not going down the rabbit hole, but just recognizing that doubt. And if I just take a breath and really drop in and immediately I can go to that place and feel in my body the the fear or the anxiety or the doubt. And what if it doesn't turn out? What if COVID lasts another 18 months? And what if? And Of course, we could totally go down that rabbit hole, get so depressed and hide under the bed. We can do that. But what I think just recognizing that the fear or the doubt or whatever is there without pretending that it's not allows us then to say, okay, I know that's there. What can I do? And when we focus, even if it's a tiny little bit on what we can do, even if it's just, oh, okay, and for the worst case scenario was I might die. And for a couple of weeks there, I pretty much went to bed every night 
certain I wasn't going to wake up the next morning. And so what I would do is, okay, I'm going to take an hour and just do everything I could do in that hour, as long as I could stay awake or keep my focus or the energy on it and prepare for that eventuality. I had already created a will. I had already, my, the arrangements had already been made for my children. I wasn't anxious about that, but that often I've talked to tens of thousands of cancer patients. That's often a big anxiety for them, but it's really an anxiety for everybody. What do we do in the worst case scenario? Do you have those things in place? And if you don't, that will draw emotional energy on you, even if you're not paying attention to it. Mm. It'll nudge in the background of your mind. So what I started to do in the hospital, what I could do was I could start writing that next book. And I started writing a book about death and cancer and survivorship and hope. And I started writing about bridging the gap between fear and hope mm. and meditating, putting conditions into place that support that highest vision. And so if I only had 15 minutes where I could stay awake with enough energy, I would focus that on writing. I would take myself through the same process that I probably had taken thousands of people through before. I call it emotional archaeology. Mm. It's basically a step-by-step -step process to get to really dial in on the most important stuff. Mm. And what I think is relevant to people now in, in our situation is we might be limited to what we actually can do. For instance, my wife and I ordinarily will host live events. We can't host live events in a hotel ballroom anymore, but we can do virtual gatherings on whatever platform lets us look at each other. And we made the shift and started gathering with people online and virtually. So that's one thing we can do. We can keep doing the work to keep our to keep on top of our game. That's another thing we can do. We can continue to network in other ways, telephone, email, social media, etc. We can do the work so that we don't let the negatives crawl in there and have fear take over too much of our attention. And so this, this idea of dealing with fear, part of it is recognizing that it's there. Another part of it is doing what you can. Another part of it is like, I have this, this I work with clients. I say, it's not who you are, the fear, the emotion, the anger, whatever it is, it's not who you are. It won't last forever and you're not alone. Mm -hmm. So those three steps always have helped me like, okay, even if I'm in terror, I know that the terror won't last forever. Mm -hmm. I've been in that moment. Oh my God, I could die. I could die. I could die. I could die and have that terror possess my body, but I know it won't last forever. Even if I stayed in it, eventually it would peter out. Mm -hmm. Won't last forever. It won't last forever. And then that I know that's not me. It's not who I am. It's an emotion running through my body. It's energy running through my nervous system. My nervous system's doing its job feeling. We can talk about that later. And then I'm not alone. Mm. Now, ultimately, I was alone in my hospital room, but I knew I had family members who loved me. I had my children who cared about me. I knew that I had a community that cared about me. And uh, we got letters and emails and newspaper articles written about it. I knew that there were a lot of people praying for me and holding the intention of my well-being. But ultimately, if none of that was there, I always knew the truth, as I have come to understand it, of myself as a spiritual being was infinitely connected to every other being in the universe. And in that regard, I'm never alone. 
And so it won't last forever. It's not who I am and I'm not alone actually yeah. feels true for me. And yeah. yeah. Does that answer your question? I mean, that two minutes could be a whole webinar, the whole book. A whole <laughs> yeah, it has been. And, yeah. it, right. So let me recreate what you just said. So yes, yeah. hold that vision, but don't grasp it. And also, so feel whatever emotions that comes up, let it flow through you because they're real, but not true. They're just temporary states that's flowing through you right now. Yeah. And from that place, focus on your own sphere of influence, take micro steps towards it, whether it be set up the environment properly, whether it be uh, taking micro steps to, uh, towards realizing that vision, which is what you did. You started writing the book, letting that experience and wisdom flow through you during that time. So then it, when you get out, whatever manuscript that you produce could be useful for others. Yes. I, I hear that. And also the third thing is to also remember that you're not by yourself. This is temporary. You're not doing this by yourself. And in the grander scheme of things, you're here for a reason. Did I capture the main point? Yeah, absolutely. Beautifully said. Yeah. I, I really like that the taking micro step part because, and I'll share this with actually two parts I wanted to highlight. One yeah. is during my younger days, my name literally means strong will in Chinese. So during my younger days, I will my way through any kind of internal resistance or external resistance. And because I thought that's how we we're supposed to do it, the very masculine intentionality that will be true kind of approach to life. Yeah. And, and I would actually suppress any kind of negative thoughts or emotion that comes up. And after a little while, I came to realize well, a few th different realizations. One, suppress emotions and thoughts eventually will come up. They may come up with disease. They may come up with neuroses. They may come up with depression or whatever it may be. It's like trying to push down a beach ball into the ocean. When I let go, it's going to pop back up somewhere, somehow. One, if I don't deal with it. <clears throat> the second thing is a more productive way to integrate it, to resolve it, actually is, as you said, to feel it completely. Once it's acknowledged and it disappears, just like the waves of the ocean wash over me. So I'm all about efficacy. So I was like, oh, okay, suppression doesn't work. Denial doesn't work. Integration works a whole lot better. Let's use that approach. So that's my new approach to really feeling and integrating all of my thoughts, emotions, and sensations that's coming up. I love it. I love it. And what I love your focus on efficacy because if emotion, for instance, is energy and it's really the energy of information, it's, it may not always be accurate information, but it's information nonetheless. It's our bodies or our nervous systems trying to tell our mind something. And so if it's suppressed, it's going to find a way to express itself. In my experience, if emotion unexpressed will express itself somehow, and the smart folks figure out a way to express it constructively and intentionally, rather than be subject to it. And there's a piece there about knowing that if I let that information and energy flow through me and it's here to teach me something, if I attend to it, there could be real gifts in that. 
And it could be attending to it could simply mean just acknowledging, oh, like I have an itch. Acknowledging it could just be scratch the itch. It could be, oh, I didn't file my taxes. And the attending to it could just mean sending an email to the accountant saying, hey, are we on track to file my taxes? The emotion, the energy is gone. Once it's out of our body, our nervous system has more resources to attend to what's actually present, which is actually what we're here for, right? You and I can serve our greatest purpose by being present. If we're worried about tomorrow, we can't be present to serve our purpose. If we're guilty about or resentful about yesterday, we can't be present to serve our purpose. And tending to these emotions, it, like I really believe that they're when they teach us and when we're willing to take note of what they're here to teach us, to just attend to them, put them on a list or actually get it done and out of the way. And then huge amounts of energy are freed up to be more present, to be more of service, to speak our truth, to serve our purpose, to speak our message, whatever the case may be. Yeah. So we can look at what we're talking about here. By the way, guys, if you're watching this, you can look at it from a psycho-spiritual point of view, which is how we're talking about it right now. But you can also look at it from just pure functionality point of view. If you think about your, your creativity, your physical energy, your emotionality as fuel tanks, right? My friend uh, Nick Sullivan, one of the previous guests, calls it the boosters of your rocket. Nice. If, you, if you think about how can you utilize the most fuel in your rocket? Then you say, all right, so the anxious, the anger, resentment, all those are taking away from actually you having the full usage of the fuel in your booster. Yeah. So if you just look at it from that point of view, that's still very useful. If you want to have the most utility of everything that you've got, the, your mind, the body, the heart, and spirit, what we're talking about here is a couple of things. One is to have a clean, shall we say, container, right, of your emotionality, physicality, mentality, and, and spirituality, so that you can have full usage of it. And how can you be present in this moment so you can actually see the reality, subjective and, and, and objective reality, so you can actually see all the chess pieces on the board and so you can be the most utilitarian base for whatever it is that you want. Absolutely. And just a real practical example of that. I, back in a day, we worked with the NFL and the NFL Players Association. I was working with this one professional football player who, to look at these athletes, these brilliant specimens of physicality and, and athletic performance, you would just assume the invulnerability that they present on the field. And I had the great honor to really get inside with these guys and to see how the, the oddest little thing would affect their physical performance. For instance, if a linebacker was concerned about pain in his knee and he indulged that concern, even the tiniest bit, not ignore that it was there, but rather tend to it like, okay, get checked out. If the doctor says it's okay, the x-rays, all this, then we have to address the thing that has you anxious about that. Because if you don't, it will absolutely impact your performance on game day. Mm. And there, so that's a sort of an obvious example. Like tend to the physical need, do some extra PT or make sure you do what you need to do to resolve 
that anxiety in your mind. The other examples of what about if I get hurt and I want my family taken care of? Totally different thing. The doctor is not going to take care of that for you. So we'd sit down and make sure that those things got addressed. Make sure the trust fund is set up and that money gets swept into that account on a regular basis so that when you step foot on the field, you're not thinking about your family. You're thinking about your purpose of being on that field. And the difference between an athlete who you'd look at and say, that guy could run right through that brick wall and leave a football player shape and a hole in the wall. <laughs> but if he's anxious about his family, his performance is going to be diminished, even if it's a tiny bit. And in a football game, an inch could mean a, the, the losing the game or winning the game. And really tending to those things. That's why I say this emotion is information. And if we take that information and act on it, then we often do a, take huge steps to reduce the impact of that emotion. And so acting on it could look like getting checked out, acting on it could look like talking to your lawyer and putting things in motion, acting on it could be getting that project done. For instance, how many people do you know whose garage is a mess, for instance, and they can't park their car in a garage? And in a way, every day they get in their car, subconsciously, they might be saying, boy, I wish I could park my car in the garage. And as long as that mess exists in the garage, their subconscious mind is using energy to address that somehow. But if you clean out the garage, it's gone. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. Completely. One of my favorite books is Marie Kondo's The Magic <laughs> of Tidying Up. Yes. And it's very deceptive in a way that it's talking about decluttering, but really is teaching beautiful wisdom principles Yes, on the, on the substance part. And I really love it because it actually gave me methodologies to, I thought I was a minimalist until I read that book. Like, oh, shoes are minimalist. Wow. Right? I'm a moderate minimalist. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, but, but the same, but what you just described is actually perfect because we all have different clutters in the mind, the body, the heart and spirit. And if we can, the more we can clear up the clutter, the more space, the more resource, the more room we'll get to create in the mind, the body, and the heart and spirit. Doesn't that explain the wild popularity of those shows that show us how quarters? Yeah. It's, it's for one people do derive some sense of satisfaction to know that, well, their situation isn't as bad as it could be, but there's also this compelling draw toward the, the, the hope that we could change it. Yeah. So I'm curious as a facilitator, how are you able to get the athletes to share with you their own internal garage? Because yeah. they, they may share, hey, my knee hurts, but how did you get even deeper than that? Are there other clutters around the pain or, and the knee so that you can really help them like, oh, okay, clean that up, address yeah. the, the will or the trust and you know, these type of things normal people don't tell others about? I love the question because what, what I love about the question is whether it's a football player or a hockey player or, or a rock musician or a C-level executive or a healer in transition from one business to another or whatever, the issues are very similar. And that is a, around vulnerability because once a person is shown, and this is, I've committed 
three decades of my life to really how it is to create a safe space for someone who is desiring change to actually submit, if you will, to the process of change. And that first step is for them, anybody desiring change is to render themselves open to the process of changing. And most people right off the street would be uncomfortable and not really feel safe to do that. And so one of, one of, even before that is first recognizing, Hey, I have a problem. Yeah, absolutely. And And so I'm assuming, so great. That's such a brilliant point. The problem, like the, in the, for the athlete, for instance, it's Mm -hmm. pretty clear. The problem is evident by a diminishment in performance. Mm -hmm. And if an athlete's revenue is incumbent upon maximum performance, they're generally going to be pretty clear about, I need to change this. Mm. I need to change this because I'm afraid. I need to change this because I, if I get hurt, I'm toast. I need to change this because I'm a, I'm a starter and I want to stay a starter because it means the difference like on a number of zeros on my paycheck. And so the I assumed if they come into my field, there's an opening to change. Now, that's partly me just being the stand I am in the world for people to be their fullest selves. And partly, hey, if you're in my field, metaphysically or spiritually, if you're in my field, I know that somewhere inside you is a version of you committed to making these changes. Mm. And so I'm going to presume that and work with you. And especially if they come to an, an event or they've been referred as a client, for instance, then I presume that, but we'll flesh that out in an introductory conversation mm-hmm. with a very direct question. How committed are you to, to making these changes? And if they are, then the key is help them recognize that I'm on their team. I'm in their corner and there are different conversations we'll have to set that stage with Tracy and I call our container. And we create a container of confidentiality, for instance, nobody, nobody on the planet in my, in the history of my life knows who my other clients are, unless my clients have told them, you know, they'll never hear from me unless I have explicit permission to say this person said that. And that comes from my experience 20 years as a corporate lawyer. I keep secrets for a living. I do that pretty well. So that right there feels is a big step toward creating that safety. Like I know just a doctor or a therapist or making a confession to a priest or something where you do that because you trust it will stay there. And so once, once a person wants to change, trusts that their process is safe with me, meaning anything they reveal, anything they share won't be used to embarrass them or anything. And that the more I know, the more I actually can help them. And that often, we're usually able to establish that type of rapport and that level of rapport with someone very quickly. Again, mostly because all of our clients have come to us from other clients or from interviews like this, where they get a sense, hey, I'm here. I actually care. I do this because it's my purpose. And so they come with a degree of openness and a willingness to see, hey, once, once they're open to the idea that I could help them or that we could help them, then it's a question of, is this, is the chemistry right? Is they, is our rapport the right fit for the kind of change they want to make? Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Thank you for that. 
Yeah, no, it's, it's really beautiful. But anyone, so I was Googling around as a way to do research for mm -hmm. our conversation. And within just a few minutes, just watching any of your content, you, I felt right away that you care for whoever that's standing in front of you, that you're here to you know, inject that love, that compassion, that empathy as a way to support them, anyone to fulfill their goals. So was that always there or was that cultivated over time as a, were you like this way when you were a lawyer, maybe put it that way. That's a great question. I, I, I would, <laughs> that's a good question. I would like to say that I was that way as a lawyer. I know that for instance, when I was a young, right out of law school and started off in a boutique corporate firm doing big bank, like one bank would buy another bank. And I was part of the team of lawyers that would facilitate that transaction, which in and of itself is pretty cut and dry, pretty straightforward. But I would like to believe that from day one, I always brought heart to a transaction. I remember as a young lawyer, I would do a real estate closing after real estate closing, representing lenders. And in those experiences, a, a new home buyer, for instance, might be looking at a stack of papers that thick written by the bank and the bank's lawyers, me and my team of guys, a, a team of lawyers, men and women who whose only purpose is to protect the bank. So these documents are definitely in the bank's favor, right? And I would be with these young new homeowners who would be terrified of the process. So I like to think that I developed a rapport with them to help them understand that like they have a lawyer there, their interests are covered and to facilitate your transaction and brought that to everything I did. I like to think I did anyway, and I had a pretty successful practice. So well, yeah, I was being facetious when I asked that. No. The question is, is this a compassion cultivated over time? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the question. I would say that yes, for sure. And I, so as a child, for instance, I remember being very sensitive to the feelings of other people. I remember being, I've of course learned, come to learn that people describe that as empathy. And I always describe, I always experienced that a little bit more than empathy. If a friend of mine was sad, I remember feeling their sadness often before they felt the sadness. And I remember being really concerned about that. My close friends and the people I cared about. And I've come to learn, I don't know if you're familiar with the human design at all. It's a fascinating way of assessing or understanding the way you tick. And as a human design, I'm a reflector, which means that I'm basically means that I'm sensitive to what other people, the other energies people are susceptible to often before they are. And it's not a, I don't call it psychic ability or anything like that. It's just a really profound sensitivity. And I've learned that working with people in leadership positions who might not be readily open to that vulnerability. I've learned to feel, to recognize that what I feel is often what they may be feeling, but not have words for it. Not that they are hesitant to, to share it. They just might not be aware that's what they're experiencing. And so what I'll say is I'm feeling sadness in the space. Does that feel true for you? And they'll drop in and be like, yeah, I guess I wasn't really aware of that, but that's what I'm feeling. Mm. And say, as a kid, I was super, I probably would have, 
would be called hypersensitive or super sensitive, but I've really come to appreciate that that was my superpower. And because I could get people, like when I was a kid, teachers loved me and I would get away with shit that I would get away with stuff that none of the other kids could get away with because the teachers just loved me to pieces. It wasn't manipulation. It wasn't trying to get away with stuff. It was just, I related to them and they related to me and other students, other kids would always come to me and they would trust me. And so I've learned pretty quickly that sensitivity, although I did feel judged and get made fun of a little bit along the way. I learned pretty quickly to, to appreciate that about myself and which is a real, was a real gift. And so, yes, in many ways, I would say it's not so much the empathy that has developed over time, but understanding it and not judging it has developed over time, like really celebrating it as a superpower rather than a, a weakness that has developed over time. That makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for for sharing that. <clears throat> so one of the things that we say on the podcast a lot is our biggest superpowers usually comes from our biggest wounds. And say that your ability to sense both yourself and others as one of your superpowers. Yes, I absolutely would. And I love even acknowledging it as that it's easy to perceive it as a weakness because it, especially in our social construct where we tend to value that confident leadership that is so certain and driven. And yet at the same time, we suffer from the consequences of that confidence when it's a false confidence, right? We see examples <laughs> on every newsfeed of the results of somebody following that. I'm certain of this. And then not being willing to see the 10,000 other perspectives that might have adjusted that leadership just a little bit. And it can be a weakness if I allow it to overtake me, for instance. Sometimes I'll feel somebody's sadness and it'll just overwhelm me. And then my wife will just nudge me and say, that might not be yours. She's like in my corner, so that might not be your sadness. And then I'll check in. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love that. Was that a turning point for you to recognize, hey, this is not a weakness. This is actually an asset. Was there a pivotal yeah. moment for you to recognize that? So I will say, I love that question. I will say that it may not be a moment, but it's a period of my life where my spiritual exploration took on an entirely new level. For instance, I've always been aware of my spiritual journey since I was about 10 years old, but the real juice kicked in maybe 15 years ago when I really started exploring, not just comparative theology and stuff like that, because I started that path in college, but when I really started exploring, like going deep with shaman and plant medicine exploration and, and things like that, where, where real, really critical look and deep exploration of consciousness when I saw, oh, you know what? This thing, this sensitivity that I've kept in its place for building relationship or developing trust or whatever is actually a huge part of who I'm here to be. And which can only come from that sort of higher perspective that spiritual exploration and can give you. And so I would say, yeah, that sort of that moment, if I, if you will, 
that I decided to step into the spiritual exploration and say, you know what? I'm not going to turn away a single voice. I'm going to explore every piece of wisdom I can. I'm going to work with every shaman who will sit down with me. I'll climb to every mountaintop that I can have time and availability for to find out and to explore more about that. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. I'm actually very curious about the different encounters that you have, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll pause for a moment. So don't let me forget to ask you about those encounters, but I'll echo what you just said earlier about it's not a singular moment per se. I've always been curious, but when I was younger, my curiosity would be shunned by others because it was too intense for most of them. And, and also it, it comes, it tests their ego quite a lot because I'll be asking teachers questions after questions and they don't have answers for obviously I've reached the extent of their knowledge and they're too prideful to tell me like, Hey, I don't know. So they would just say, shut up, right? <laughs> shut it down. And same thing with other parental figures in my life. And it wasn't until I started to explore my own spiritual journey. As you said, my definition of spirituality is my relationship to the greater whole, not necessarily certain religiosity per se, but my place in the world. So I, I agree with that hundred percent. Where do I stand? And then from that place and also look at the different constructs that I have in my mind and then start to examine one by one. Oh, did, did I believe this because I believe it or is it inherited? Is it, I got it somewhere from society or from the Chinese culture or for some books or somewhere or every single one of them. And to, to come to trust more and more my subjective reality of this feels right for me, right? This is my truth versus I'm trying out something, some ideas, some beliefs, some constructs. And so I'm going to believe it because I have believed it for the last three decades, or I'm going to believe it because it's part of my culture per se. So yeah. thank you for sharing that. That was really beautiful. Yeah, thank you. I love so the way. You, yeah. Go ahead. I just love the way you described that very eloquently as well, that this idea of it's my truth as I've come to understand it, as I've asked into it. And there's always going to be a, a certain degree of stuff we take on faith until we do our own exploration, especially as young children and young adults, we take on what our parents teach us and what our teachers teach us, et cetera. And I think at some point, the really fortunate among us have the space to ask our own questions, you know? Yes, for sure. We don't have to worry about food, shelter, a social connection, a self action yeah. We can ask more of these type of questions about place in the universe, self-transcendence, self-actualization. <laughs> yeah, the, up, the upper level. levels of Maslow's pyramid are definitely luxurious. Yes. So you've explored this for 15 years, you've talked to different shamans and tell us maybe one or two or three of your encounters that really have you reevaluate your own value system internally. If wow. you want to go there. Yeah, that's such a big giant question, a beautiful question. <laughs> and what's funny is, so there's this part of me that's like, oh my God, I want to tell you about everything. And some of which aren't legal and <laughs> some of which are very controversial, et cetera. But I will say that maybe I, let me put a, no, I, I'm perfectly happy. I, we don't, I just not going to give you names and dates and locations. Exactly. No, no, <laughs> days, no names, no <laughs> locations. 
share with us your, your experience and the lesson you took from it. Yeah. So one of the, there's so many to, to pick from it. There's, there are two in particular that I will, that I'd love to share. One of which really relates to even the name of your podcast, Noble Warrior, that I'd love to address. The first one is a moment that I had during with, with a shaman who I'd grown to trust. It had many deep experiences with using psilocybin mushrooms, among many other things, but including ayahuasca, which if you're not familiar, is a tea made, I'm, I'm sure you are, but others may not be, that it was a tea made from the vine of two vines that grow prodigiously, prodigiously in, in the rainforest. And that over time, the brewing of these two vines emit a substance that uh, DMT and other things that have psychoactive effects. And during one of these experiences, I remember having, being aware of my attachment to my life, my ego, my, my consciousness, and my fear of letting go of that. And the shaman was encouraging me to let go. And, and I was quite afraid to let go. And why are you afraid? And I remember saying, because I'm afraid I'll disappear. Literally, my ego was holding on against the risk of obliteration, which in many ways on the spiritual path is, yes, obliterate the ego and let that happen. But in the moment, I was terrified because literally in my altered state, I also, I actually thought that I might disappear, like literally disappear. And there was nothing the shaman could do other than hold me and encourage me. And I remember having this moment where I was deep in this space and conscious of my body curled up in a ball and having a dialogue with creation itself saying, if I let go, I might, my body might soil itself. I might throw up. I might poop myself and die. But on a higher level, if I let go, I might disappear. And I just was rocking back and forth and rocking back and forth. And I'm having this dialogue and I'm sweating and I'm shivering and, and I, I want to, I have to evacuate my bowels at the same time. I have to purge my gut. And, and I was just rocking back and forth. I'm rocking back and forth. And I heard, and I hear this, the sweetest voice. I can't even, I can't even approximate it. It was so sweet and heavenly and sublime. I heard the words trust mother and then and my whole body relaxed i heard this voice and it was medicine to me that can't even it was otherworldly and that moment was not just trust mother in this moment it was not just release to to whatever your body might do it was such a overarching admonishment to trust mother. Now, what I interpreted that instantaneously as a knowing in my body was to trust creation, trust the universe, trust mother nature, trust mother, the energy that holds me to deliver me to my highest expression, not try so hard, not try to force things, which is often the masculine, I'm clear on my objective, I'm going to make this happen. Strong will, strong will right here. Strong will, which is beautiful. <laughs> and is it serving us, right? Yeah, exactly. So that for me, I don't know if I've conveyed the profound nature of that experience, but it really, those words come back to me often when I'm 
when I become aware that I'm trying to push something, mm. when I'm forcing an agenda or trying to make something happen. Yeah. Yeah. These type of spiritual awakening moments is the alpha and the omega in that moment. So we're going to describe it. Words does do not do it justice and the profound nature of this particular message. But I hope the viewers get an idea of what it could be, what it did for George. And it continued to be an anchor, a mantra for you to navigate your internal states as you're facing new challenges in life yes oh my gosh always absolutely and because again when i'm trying to force something when something's there's definitely hard work involved in success there's definitely times when things are going to be hard and at the same time there are occasions when it just doesn't always need to be that hard and Distinguishing between the two is important, is a skill, is a, a life skill. At the same time, surrendering to it when it when you notice that it doesn't have to be that hard is important. And that those words, trust mother, for me, remind me to do that. And and what I have found is if I default to trusting mother and surrendering to it, if it's a moment where I'm supposed to be working a little harder that will always present itself. So the default of trusting and surrendering actually is almost the, always the best way to go. Because if it's, if it turns out not to be, there's almost always time to recover. Does that so, make sense? Yeah, it does. How do you feel about that? What, what yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm trying to see what, there's a lot of places we can go, but I'm curious to know about this whole journey of surrendering and I'll share my own experience. Yeah, uh, please. And to the people who are watching this, my name literally means strong will. So meaning masculine carving out, no, just go over it, go through it, go under it, go around it. doesn't matter. Just, you know, fulfill my wishes. has always been my strong suit. It's in my name. And, and as George has beautifully articulated, it's a sword. It cuts both ways. So I can use it to pulverize obstacles in front of me. At the same time, there's a cost of trying to just making things harder than you need to be. Sometimes like riding a wave, I don't always have to ride every wave. Sometimes I can actually just look at all the waves that's in front of me and say, all right, I'm, this wave is too hard. It takes too much effort to pedal over there. Let me write this other wave and may experience something even more magical, more surprising. That's part of my lesson that I learned. So I'm curious in the journey of learning the navigation of the different waves, right? Sometimes you use your will to paddle harder. Sometimes you surrender. So can you share with us? And this is a very philosophical question, perhaps. How are you learning to surrender? <laughs> I don't know if it, it, is, is that clear enough of a question? Should I contextualize more? No, it's a great, it's, a, it's clear. So I promise I will answer this question. Can I, let me ask you a question first. So we yeah. can do this a little bit. Sure. Is, and I'll tell you why I'm asking the question, because I've worked with many war veterans, active duty war veterans, both cancer survivors, as well as in the leadership programs. And just the word surrender to a combat veteran mm -hmm. has a whole 
dictionary full of definition behind it. And yeah. so I'm curious to you what surrender means for you in this context. Yeah, no one's ever asked me that question before. What mm -hmm. does surrender Surrender means for me giving up my sovereignty, giving up my agency to something. Yeah, to something else, not me. So that's awesome. Wow. What and a potent definition. My literally my the hair is on my arms is standing up because that piece of surrender and giving up your sovereignty. Now, first of all, as a human who recognizes your sovereignty and your agency in any moment might just be like the only thing you have, like the only thing that is um, certain, if you will, like in a world where impermanence is a, is, a, is a natural state, the idea of surrendering or giving up your sovereignty could be so challenging to your sense of existence, to your ego. To my entire ego, egoic being, correct. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. And because in a way, sovereignty is part of what defines our ego, mm -hmm. our, you know, our sense of self. Yep. And so what, so I want to get back to the original question now, the experience of surrender, how I've embraced the experience of surrender is really related to that last piece of your definition to something else. And that as a man, as a leader, as a teacher, as a father, as a partner, as a friend, I'm not willing to surrender consciously my agency to any other person. Now, I know I recognize that I do that unconsciously. I do that unconsciously every time I respond to a notification on my phone. Ah, I just did it. I just surrendered my agency. Now, and but at the same time, I've consciously taken steps like I'd never have my notifications on my phone and not just the movie, that movie, the recent movie that come out, that just social came out, dilemma. the social dilemma. But yeah. I had done that before. Like I'm not willing, I'm not willing to surrender my agency to every other person's impulse on Twitter, for instance. However, I am willing in some certain circumstances in pretty much every circumstance to surrender my agency to what I've come to understand to be creation. And you might, people might call that God, depending on your vocabulary, right? Christ consciousness, Jesus, Buddha, Brahma, Allah, whatever word we use, infinite spirit, infinite nature, creation, whatever. However, anyone would relate to that entity, that field of energy, that infinite field of possibility, whatever that is. I surrender to that. I submit to that because I truly believe that my most expressed life as a human being is my humanness surrendering to my spiritual being expressing itself. So in other words, if I could let my consciousness of my ego, this thing that I think defines me sometimes, this George-ness, if I surrender that to my spiritness, that often results in a better outcome for me. 
And it can be scary sometimes. It was scary when I was rocking back and forth with that shaman to trust and to let go. It's scary sometimes taking the stage in front of 1500 people or whatever. And will I remember everything I want to teach them? I remember everything I want to say. It's scary saying to somebody, my fee for working with me for the year is $100,000 and that is payable in full. And it's scary to look somebody in the eye and say that. And yet surrendering and a surrender is also includes not attaching to the outcome. Surrendering includes a preparation that the universe's answer could be no right now. For me, the, the surrender is a two-part thing. It's trusting that you'll be safe in the, just surrendering in and of itself will be safe and trusting that regardless of the outcome, that safety will continue. Mm. Which actually bridges to the second experience that I wanted to share that relates to your noble warrior, if I may. Yeah, please. You shared with me when we were first getting to know each other that noble warrior to you meant someone who's purposeful and I think that was and also willing to lean into discomfort. Correct. Which I think is one of the most beautiful definitions of a warrior. When we think of I'm half Greek and half Italian and my Greek heritage is Spartan. And so the fascination around the Spartan warrior ethic has always been in my it's just been in my consciousness since I was a teenager. And then, of course, when the 300 came out and that exploration was just renewed. And the idea of celebrating that a warrior chooses a, a certain ethic and leans into that ethic no matter what it looks or feels like, even when it's horribly uncomfortable and even when death is certain, right? Because that, that the warrior has adopted, that that's my code. And the reason why that warrior can rely on his brothers in arms in this case is because he knows that his brother has taken that same, accepted that same code. Now, if we take actual mortal conflict out of the equation, then leaning into discomfort becomes possibly a real paradigm shifter for people. And I remember working with a shaman with a medicine called Kembo. It's a frog medicine. It's a medicine that's derived from the secretions of the skin of a Amazonian tree frog, of South American tree frog. Now, this tree, what's significant about these secretions is the tree frog has no predators. So literally in its DNA, there is no mechanism for fear. There's no mechanism for, oh, this could kill me. It just doesn't exist because nothing in nature eats this frog. So it's secretions being poisonous are somewhat paradoxical. The poison keeps it alive because nothing wants to eat this frog and yet nothing wants to eat this frog. So the medicine is paradoxical and in the human system, it's very disruptive. And by that it causes tremendous nausea, not so much psychedelic effects, but definitely altering states. And I remember being in ceremony with this medicine, with a shaman, being in, <laughs> in all sorts of dis discomfort. 
And part of me, my ego was saying, this isn't as bad as chemotherapy. I can handle this. I can handle this. I can handle this. Does and it feel like chemotherapy out of curiosity? For me, the nausea was very, really bad nausea is really bad nausea. And you just want it to end. And the my physical body was in great deal of discomfort. I, you know, really nauseous and very similar to the ayahuasca experience. Wanted to come out of both ends. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And the shaman, she was a brilliant teacher and just held brilliant space. She just whispered in my ear, this is what getting feels. And I remember those words and thinking to myself, okay, maybe I don't want it to end. Not from a masochistic place of, yeah, I want to feel this pain, but rather, oh, if this is what getting well feels like, maybe I want to lean into this and not escape from it. And why I think that's relevant to your warrior metaphor is because the idea of leaning into discomfort, depending on the context, can be quite heroic. Even if it doesn't appear that way to anybody else but you, because your willingness to lean into discomfort in any given moment might be so inspirational to you. I know for me, I was like, I was really proud of myself. Because at any moment, I could have asked my body to purge and ended the experience. But I leaned into it. And what I really discovered, even if that was the only thing I was meant to learn about myself from that journey, is that when the chips are down or when the moment comes, I might be willing to lean into it. That gives me a great sense of empowerment. I wasn't in mortal danger. I wasn't in harm's way. My body was physically safe. I was just really uncomfortable and I leaned into it. And so I feel like there's something inspiring about that. It's like not at all to equate. This is not an equivalent. Well, we hold so much admiration for that firefighter who runs into the building. Wait a second. That's totally contrary to your well-being. And you run into the building. That willingness. That firefighter runs into the building because he or she has prepared for that. They've done the work. They've strengthened that muscle. They know the ins and outs and the strategies to protect themselves. They, so they have the competence to lean into the discomfort. That is a really important pathway to lay out. That the pathway to courage and greatness is actually, we, we know the steps. We can build a muscle, we can practice, we can put into place this structures and strategies to support our being our highest self. We can get the mentorship and the tutelage to learn those skills. We can do all these things ahead of time so that when we're challenged, we can lean into the discomfort. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much, George, for sharing that. So on this podcast, we do talk a lot about different ceremonies, combo, ayahuasca, Spartan race, boxing, ice bath, breath work, all different kinds of ways to, one may say, extremely uh, uncomfortable, extremely intense. But the way I articulate for myself, actually, so people think that I like running. I like these type of intensities. I actually don't like it at all. I don't like it. I don't, I hate running. It's not fun for me. It's, you know how people say I have this runner's hide is euphoria. I've never experienced that at all whatsoever <laughs> and never experienced that whatsoever. I love it. But 
what I do like about it is I'm earning my resiliency. I'm earning my grit because resilience and grit can be gifted, can be given. I got to earn it. I, I can't just go out yeah. and buy no hundred units of resilience. That's just not how it works. So for me, every time I'm going through this self-selected intense experience, I'm earning myself more resilience capacity or capacity for resilience, shall we say? Yes. So that to me is a spiritual payoff, right? That's what I receive going through combo or ayahuasca or Spartan race or boxing or any of these uncomfortable things because yeah. I enjoy earning my own wisdom and resiliency and grit from that. So true. Yeah, I, I love it. I, I went through a phase probably 20 years ago where I couldn't, there was a, an author named Richard Marchenko. Richard was uh, one of the founding members of SEAL Team 6, great writer. He writes a lot of fiction based on his experience as a commando. And he's a great writer, very funny, very totally alpha. And I remember he wrote that one of the wisdom that one of the pieces of wisdom that they kept in the SEAL teams was that the more you sweat in training, the less you bleed in battle. And that stuck with me, just stuck in my consciousness. And I've trained for marathons and run and used that as a platform to raise a lot of money for great causes and things. And, and, and I remember remembering during training, going out and in February and cold, wet, just crappy conditions to run. This is back East, um, training for a marathon in the middle of February because for the marathon in June or whatever, just being absolutely miserable and just reminding myself, you're going to be glad you did at mile 22 or mile 24. You're glad. Yeah. When you hit that wall, you're going to be glad you might be not be conscious even in that moment, but your body is going to be glad that you ran this mile right now. And it's so true. How many times I've hit mile 24 and felt like my legs were going to fall off and just feel that, okay, it's almost there. I'm, I'm almost there. And just get that little bit less left of fuel in the tank or whatever it takes to get you across that finish line. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, so I want to go back to the journey of surrendering because I think it's apt to relevant to what we're discussing. Sure. In my mind, journey of surrendering is, it is a journey, right? In the beginning part, maybe it goes against ego. I'm going to power through it. This, I can handle the intensity. This, and I was sharing my personal experience with plant medicine as an, as an example. And for me, it wasn't until I've done it multiple times and I realized the insanity of my ego, of my mind, just watch it over and over again. Oh, okay, so this, these thoughts, these feelings, these bodily sensations, they're real but not true. And then develop my own, I call it spiritual spine, right? So I can actually trust and develop my spiritual spine to trust this collective consciousness, whatever you call it, this trust, this inner knowingness, right? That's within me, trust more and more and really grow that spiritual spine in spite of external lack of external evidence and continue to trust this inner knowing. So I'm curious to know what are some of the tactical steps that one could take to develop their own spiritual spine using my metaphor? 
in addition to combo ayahuasca. <laughs> I mean, th those are my practices. Those, those are your practices. Can you just break it down for us? What are some yeah. other practices that they can take on to uh, so, up that faith in their own internal knowingness? So it's a super powerful question. I totally, I, I will get, I will answer that. I also want to say that even combo and state altering experiences, things like that, they're not shortcuts. They might be shortcuts in that you definitely save yourself years of struggle by getting to insights quicker. At the same time, it may take a lifetime to integrate some of those discoveries. So I, I do like to point out that the that working with shaman and things like that, it isn't a, an easy pass to something because some people have these experiences and the profound learning they get rocks them effectively that they have they realize they have to reevaluate every way they live. So it's not by any means a shortcut to to anything really. Having said that, what I love about the question is number one, everybody finds their own way. And I'll share what I've seen. I'll share what I've seen to be effective. That that we have this nervous system, right? This this incredibly intricate nervous system that from the day we're born gathers information. If you look at like literally our nervous system when we're born is a clean slate. It's like an empty hard drive. And we go our entire lives. All the world wants to do is install an app on our hard drive. <laughs> Everybody we meet wants to install their app on our hard drive. And every teacher wants to teach something to us. That's an app being installed into our hard drive. And one of the first things that I have found profound for me as a scientist, as a curious seeker, as is to understand a little bit about the biology of how it works. I think as a life scientist, graduate with my degree in biology, ecology, and natural history, I'm curious about how things are put together in the natural world. That to me has been a huge gift. I think having a curiosity about how the natural world, world works is fundamental. Even a rudimentary understanding of biology, of what the circle of life, about trophic cascades, about how the natural world works, why it is that a pollution in one part of the world impacts the strength of a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico, why that is the connectivity, the interconnectivity of all living beings. Having a fundamental understanding of that is critical. And so the first thing is get, get curious about everything. Get curious about life. Learn about your body and how it works. Learn about why it's important that we eliminate long chain polymers from the food chain. Why it's important to eliminate what's the roundup from our food processing and food creation methodology. Why it's important that we be kind to one another and compassionate. All these things. So number one, get curious. Number two, be willing to experiment so that you find what works for you. I could tell you that Wim Hof breathing, for instance, and ice baths is a great strategy. And it is. I love my cold showers and I love ice baths and I love the breathing. And that works for me, but it may not work for you. And that's okay. So be curious and find out what works for you, which I think 
is, is really, why else are we here? <laughs> why else are we here if not to learn what works for us? And so that's number two. Recognize. Yeah, there's a reason why. So recently, I, just real quick interjection, and then we can go back to your number three. Um, Great. Meditation questions or insight that came to me is, what's it all for if not for joy? What's it all for if not for joy? So that's why we focus a lot about fulfillment, joy on this podcast. That's beautiful. And addressing specifically to high achievers. Because I've been down that path before. High achievers, hey, don't get me wrong. It's fantastic and great. And that's a proxy to aliveness, joy, and fulfilling life. So I love it. Because I don't think any, if you, any high achiever on their deathbed ever said, I wish I'd suffered more. I really <laughs> wish I'd created more misery around me. Yeah. <laughs> Right. And all of the people who I've talked to who have had what we might call a deathbed conversion, all the people I've ever talked to that have had one of those experiences, where maybe a near death experience or something wherein they had a shift in their consciousness, all of them said, I want to be more available for the moment and I want to enjoy life more. Nobody ever said, I'm really going to try to put more suffering in my life or make the people around me more miserable. <laughs> and yeah, well, if not for joy, like one of my, one of my core purposes, Tracy and I agree on this and we're so part of what brought us together is like to really, there are children, there are animals, there are human beings suffering tremendously in our world. And I really do believe that their suffering impacts my well-being. And if I can do something to ease their suffering, not just by offering them money or a meal or something, although I try to do that too, but by actually trying to impact the conditions that contribute to their suffering, if I can have an impact on that, then I know I'm impacting my well-being too. That's why I'm so passionate about learning, get, get curious about how the natural world works, because you and I are definitely connected. Your well-being impacts my well-being and vice versa. And so this idea of joy isn't purely selfish. Like, of course, I want to enjoy my life. I want to have lots of joy and pleasure in my own life. And I know that if I can create joy in another's life, that supports my well-being too. Totally. Uh, I, yeah. If we look at all of the examples of real, like, truly people that we admire, and I think it was Mal Malcolm Gladwell, could have been Gay and Katie Hendricks, talked about the 10,000 hours, putting in your 10,000 hours to be, to develop a competency in something. Yeah. And the, it's, it's, it's often not enough to be, to desire a competency. It, there's a level of willingness that has to accompany that. And sometimes the, for instance, I love communicating with people from stage. I love being on stage. I love teaching to audiences and it's meaningful for me to be able to convey what I've learned to people and to create that experience in such a way that it's an intimate conversation, not just me 
lathering on stage out to a dark room, but it's meaningful to that the, the audience has an experience that they not just leave, oh, that was interesting. Now let's go have lunch. But they actually, like we've had a conversation that's meaningful to me. And so I've studied how to do that. I've, I've practiced, I've put myself at risk of being looking foolish to try to develop that skill. And the willingness to be uncomfortable sometimes for long periods of time has to accompany that desire. And I don't know that we teach that globally. I don't know that we teach that in the social conversation, especially in a world where literally I can have a refrigerator full of food with one click of my thumb on the smartphone app to order groceries. We can have our needs met relatively quickly given the means, et cetera. And so this idea of, okay, you may have to endure some discomfort to know that experience that you desire is, I feel like we try to teach that in schools, but oftentimes we're let, we, we have to really discover that on our own. And this is where that desire, you're going to have to hold that desire. You're going to want that thing. You're going to want it. You're going to have to want it hard enough to be willing to endure the discomfort to get to that place. And that's true of anything. That's true of a skill. That's true of money. That's true of an opportunity. That's true of relationship. All of these things that we have to be willing to put the time in and learn, which means, and this is the clincher for so many clients and so many people that have helped get this in their cells, that we have to be willing sometimes to be a beginner. And to me, there is Oh, there is very little, there are very few experiences as uncomfortable as being a beginner at something. Because being a beginner at something means being not good at something. And that's really challenging to our ego. So it's not just about getting curious. It's not just about finding what works for you. It's also be willing to be a beginner. You know, there, my wife teaches this brilliant thing. It, it, she learned it from somewhere, this idea of there are four stages of consciousness where there's unconscious incompetence, which when you're moving around, you don't know what you don't know, uh, but you think everything, and that's very dangerous. Then there's conscious incompetence, which is a really hard place to be because you're aware of what you don't know. If you're starting to, if you, I'm a ski instructor, so skiing is a good example when at first you don't really know, you don't know the breadth of what you don't know about the sport. Then you start skiing and you realize, you take a lesson and you realize how much you don't know. And then as you gather some facility with it, you're really focusing on what to do right. That's conscious competence. You're aware of what you're aware of, what you don't know, but you're developing some skill. And then that last phase where skiing becomes like breathing. That's unconscious competence. That's that highest level. And you got to be willing to endure all of the uncomfortable stages of moving through that ladder of competency. For truly, to have anything, pick anything that you want, you're going to have to, at some level, in some way, go through those. And that requires the, the next thing, which is what I've done 
a lot of work with people. This is probably what I'm best at is holding people in that. They start judging themselves. You start judging yourself when you get good enough at something where you like to do it, but, and also conscious enough about it to realize how much farther you have to go. That can be really tricky. People are often conditioned to judge themselves. I don't know if you can relate to this. I know I can. Uh, very much so. Very much yeah. so. I mean, you start I, beating yourself up. Oh, I can't believe I made that mistake, right? Yeah. Well, I'm mastery. I want it now. I'm watching Michael Jordan play, and then I want to be Michael Jordan tomorrow. So that's the egoic my wants. Yeah, especially for high achievers because they have figured out things in the past and they have some other successes in some other areas. And they think that everything should be as easy, but really when you enter into the dojo, let me use that metaphor a bit, you're entering a white belt. So you're going to suck for a long time until you hit that 10,000 hours in deliberate practice of 10,000 hours, not just any practice. Not just 10,000 hours, not just sitting there. Then you actually begin to really appreciate that skill as a self-expression, as a part of you. So I'm curious to know from your point of view, because you got into multiple different things in a very high level. You are a professional ski instructor, you're a coach, you are a speaker coach. And I know that also you are, you're, you do like men's work as well as uh, relationship type work. So you have competence in a lot of different areas. I'm curious to know, at what point did you choose coaching as part of your dharmic path? All right. I know that I'm pretty good, but I'm going to devote my life to this. And let me contextualize that even more. It's like any relationships. First, you got curious and you like the activity. And then you get passionate about it. Then you decide to get married. Then it's a devotion. So there's that any kind of journey that you take on in any kind of relationship. So I'm curious from your perspective, at what point did you say, I'm going to double down on coaching and speaking and being an author as part of my path? I love, it. I love the question. I know that very early on, like literally in college, I knew that I was meant to speak. I just, I felt it. Like I listened to a, again, a man who would eventually become a dear a person to me and a mentor, Zig Ziglar. I heard a tape of his, somebody handed me a tape of his about the, the, the science of something about how to stay motivated. And I thought, oh my gosh, I love the way this guy talks. And I, I love the, the, the image of me standing in front of a group of people and sharing this. And I started speaking, like I took a public speaking course and I started taking every opportunity I could and every opportunity to hone that skill. I, I was a DJ, I hosted talk shows. I did, I, as soon as I could get my FCC approval, I, I, I was doing radio shows. And then I, ah, just every opportunity I could to take the stage. I did stand up for two years just to keep, get myself over the stage fright things. And, and, and meanwhile, following whatever professional, like I started in banking and then law school and that, always seeking opportunities to speak and share. Then from the perspective of this is what I've learned from other teachers. And somebody, some people call that the reporter style of, of teaching. I went out and did my research and then shared the results of my research. And then as I developed some experience doing that very early on, I started creating my own frameworks for motivation and how to stay motivated, things like that. And what happened was this was all before there was a coaching industry. Now, this was back in the, the late 1980s and early 1990s. So 
I had just graduated from law school, started my law practice, and I had the great fortune of having as a client for a little real estate transaction representing this man to purchase his home. He was a CEO of a company and we began to talk and he was a real fan of personal development. And so we started comparing notes about, about all the great teachers that we loved in personal development. And he was fascinated by my fascination. And he said, my sales team, hears me talk about this all the time. Would you come and talk to my sales team? And I was like, of course, I would love to. And, and as a result of that, they asked me, how do we, how do we stay connected to this material? We, we just love this conversation. It keeps us inspired. We do better when we're plugged into this conversation. And the, my first coaching program was born. He hired me to work with them on an ongoing basis. And their performance reflected that and they made more money. The company did better, et cetera. And this was, again, before there, I don't remember ever hearing the expression executive coach at the time. And so I started doing that, coaching people to higher levels of performance. And I picked up a client here who needed to hone his golfing, her golfing game, actually. And then I picked up another sales team. And then I picked up another athlete and then a football player and then a doctor's office and a hair salon and just kind of turned into something. It wasn't intentional. I didn't say, I'm going to build a coaching practice. It just happened that my gifts were being called for. And then was had the good fortune to pair up with uh, a colleague of mine who I, we had met on the speaking path and Zig Ziglar and Brian Tracy and Dennis Waitley. And we created this thing called the coaching staff. It was the first online coaching portal mm. and it was a real opportunity for me to meet, work with people who i admired for a decade and, and that's probably the first time i actually called myself a coach i'd always looked at myself as a guide and i called myself an enthusiastic guide i get people excited about stuff and then i really learned the ins and outs of okay if somebody wants something you establish where they are, where they want to be, and the bridge to get there, and then support them along the way to get there. And like my first official coaching program came into form. And then at the same time, my life experiences kept up with me. I went through a very painful divorce and ended up with sole custody of my kids. And that experience alone as a full-time single father, a lawyer with two law offices, a having a coaching practice, like managing all of that gave me some real material to share on stage. And so I started writing and speaking more. And again, this is really before the internet exploded and became such a real part of all of our lives. So it's been a very gradual, there's no meteoric overnight success story. It's a very gradual process of my competencies and the audience for my gifts grew along the way. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate that, that depiction because oftentimes when we talk about purpose-driven companies or purpose-driven life, people have this romantic idea of when I find my purpose, I'm going to fall in love first sight. Where I'm going to feel this tug that's within me and the universe will open up its pathway. 
I just haven't, I've talked to 90 people so far. I've just not met one person who just said that of the universe, show me the path and struck by lightning, strike by lightning the life. Just what I've heard over and over again is I was curious about it. I'm open to new pathways and there's positive feedback loop and I continue to cultivate my skills and throughout I got better and better. And that's how I hone my dharmic path along the way. That's what I've heard so far. And from my personal experience, that's my experience as well. I've yet to get hit by lightning and just everything goes smooth sailing and no problems and everything's effortless. Just that hasn't been my experience so far in life. <laughs> there has been a lot of happy accidents. Hey, I was called to do this. Didn't really want to do it, but I did it anyway, because I want to be of service and develop some lifelong friends out of that. And then our path continues. That's just been my experience. Hence the question. Yeah, for sure. And I think it depends on your perspective, but I think those are the lightning strikes. Like the lightning strikes are, are the ayahuasca journey where you realize a piece of your dharma, a piece of your path is illuminated. That's a lightning strike. It doesn't, it might not, you might not, you might stand up from that experience. Oh my God, I see something so very clearly. And then that doesn't necessarily yield results instantaneously. And yet the shift in your consciousness is one of those results is a big deal. Like I think the Course in Miracles talks about a miracle is a shift in consciousness. Mm. And so if you've had a shift in consciousness, it's quite miraculous. It mm -hmm. could come from an ayahuasca journey. It could come from a painful, an accident or a circumstance, but it's that shift in consciousness that is quite miraculous. And accumulating those shifts in consciousness and honoring them and surrendering them to them has an accumulative effect that may result in great wealth. It may result in an opportunity where you make a lot of money in a short period of time. It may have those effects. But what's even more profound in my experience is the ability to look back after a fashion and say, on the whole, the, these years were invested wisely. I served a purpose. I touched people's lives in a meaningful way. I know that when I get an email or run into somebody who says, I heard you talk at this conference and you said this one thing, those three, the feeling is not, it won't last forever. It's not who I am and I'm not alone. That changed my perspective like that. That's the kind of stuff that sustains me. I hundred percent, my friend, thank you for saying that doing this podcast we talk about all kinds of things, really life in general, business specific, but the more specific thing is fulfillment and joy and also resilience and overcome difficulties. Like how do you actually stay on purpose in spite of your circumstances? And sometimes we talk about very, very specific things like suicidal thoughts, ideations. And one of the guests share his experience in staring down, you know, barrel of a gun almost. Literally. Yeah. literally almost pulling the trigger and chose go a different path and how his life have shifted after that single decision to a more beautiful place where he's at right now. And one of the members heard this story said, Hey, I was actually in the very similar state. I was planning and doing all these things. And I thank you for sharing that story. I chose a different path.
So hearing stories like that really makes it meaningful for me to continue this effort. By you know, creating and, that platform. I mean, that, yeah, that's so, that's, it's beautiful. That's meaningful to you. If that's fueling you, that's part of your dharma. Like you say, your dharmic path. You've touched a life in, in a very meaningful way. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's like breadcrumbs, right? We don't always hear type of breadcrumbs. They don't always come back to us, but I do trust that whatever listeners are hearing this, hearing your story and your gems and your mental models, your actual more tactics, they're going to take this on and the, the positive impact reverberates infinitely. And isn't it cool to think about, I love that you're, you're sharing that and you shared that story about the suicide because that particular, that one for me, um, it is potent because I literally, I've never had a suicidal idea. I've probably had the idea of it, but I've never, that planning stage they, they talk about as being so profound. And so for me, the idea of suicide for someone to be, to reach that place of, I don't know enough about the experience to call it hopelessness, but it appears to me to be a state of resourcelessness. Mm-hmm where someone might feel I'm at a place where I have no other option that this seems no, as it's been described to me by people who have been in that experience, that this seems to be the best option. Mm -hmm. This actually is a positive Mm -hmm. that as it was described to me by someone that my leaving this planet would be a good thing for the planet. Mm -hmm. And to me, that state of being, and, and again, not with the ego or not with any kind of sense that I understand things better than anybody. But to me, I experienced that as a tragedy, that mm-hmm. someone would feel that their absence from this life would be an improvement to life. Mm-hmm. That, that lands in me as tragic, as sad. And so the idea of giving someone a pause in that moment, that your life your existence and you're following your inspiration might give someone pause in that moment is a beautiful thing. And yeah, that just really touches me. Yeah. Thank you. And one thing I also want to underline here is yes, we do talk about business, but ultimately these are all proxies to a joyous life. Ultimately, right? These are just paths whether you're in a relationship or not, whether you run a business or not, whether you have kids or not, these are just different states. Whether you do ayahuasca or not, right? These are just different states, different paths. Right. You ultimately an experience of aliveness, the experience of possibilities in life. If we could just recontextualize, ultimately it's all about context, right? Way of being. If we can recontextualize the way of being, then they can actually see new possibilities oh, I don't necessarily have to be married or I don't necessarily have to have a business or I can change it if I don't like this particular setup. Because, yeah, anyways. So you, well, you go. And just to, uh, along that line, the callback from before, there is a ripple effect. That fellow who, or, or gal who you, by helping them share their story, touch the life of another, that life will go on to touch other lives. And, and that's I, what, 
when you mentioned breadcrumbs, it might not be our, it might not be a constant thing where we become aware of the breadcrumbs. We don't wake up and say, oh yes, my purpose is very clear. And my reason for following it is very clear. And the feedback is always there. It's not the case. Sometimes it's dark and lonely and it feels like, why the heck am I doing this after all? And it's important to remember breadcrumb or no breadcrumb, that impulse to do that thing, to follow that, to say that word, to serve that purpose, to share that message is there for a reason, even when we don't know the reason. Yeah. Logically, it makes no sense for me to do a podcast like at all. <laughs> I'm, a biomedical, I'm a biomedical engineer. I'm a start, you know, former ex startup executive. Why the heck would I want to talk about entrepreneurship and spirituality at the intersection of the two, it makes zero sense. But here's the thing. Subjectively, it feels right. So bread, as you said, bread crumb or no back bread crumb. Those are nice. Don't get me wrong. But I feel true when I do this, when I have a deep conversation with a fellow noble warrior, it feels true to me. So I will continue to do this, whatever you call it as a service, a self-indulgent effort, whatever it is. I don't know why. I like it, so I'm gonna keep doing it. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I do. absolutely. I, yes. And so, just for the record, my friend, that should you feel it still feels good, but the world might be indicating to you, or you feel that the evidence is piling up against you, I promise you, call me, and I will remind you of why you need to keep doing it. All right, thank you very much. You're welcome. Now. Who you are is a space, a sacred space for people to step into their higher self. That's the way I'll read it. And who you are in the words that you utter are nothing but support and encouragement as you so beautifully demonstrated just now. So are there a specific kind of people, because you serve a wide range of people, the athletes, the you know entrepreneurs, the, the aspirational speakers the and the cancer survivors so there's a, a whole spectrum of people who could use your wisdom and experience how did you hone in on those or or, or are there even narrower scope of people that could really best use your wisdom to really help them ca um, catalyze or, or elevate their life i appreciate the question it, it, it would be hard to to made like I, I couldn't say oh that's when i decided to work with this population or that's when i decided it's there are some threads that weave through all of them and i'll say that what they have in common what all of these populations have in common that i've had the joy and honor to, to work with is that that somehow they see their life's experiences as difficult as they may have been as purposeful. They may not even understand the purpose, but they know they have a feeling. It could be a philosophy. They may not really even totally buy into it, but they have a, a sense inside them that these experiences happened for a reason, that there's, there must be some good to come out of it. And worked with trauma victims and, and people who have been through horrible, unspeakable things, and yet have a 
outlook and a disposition toward life to say, this is going to mean something. This is going to mean something. I haven't figured it out yet, maybe, or what exactly how it's going to look, but I know it is going to mean something, it's supposed to mean something to somebody. And they might hear me say, hey, your life experience has medicine for the planet. And they might not even know what that means, but they feel the truth of it. And so that's one thing they have in common, that they know that somehow their experience is meant to help or serve someone else. Mm. And they, I like that. Yeah. And just the other things that they have in common sort of stem from that. For instance, they know that there's a message in that for them to share, which draws them to learning how to speak in public or to put together a compelling talk or do a TED talk. And so they'll come to me for that. Or they will know that there's meant to be a business in there, that there's a, a commercial expression of that purpose that would be meaningful to pursue and that could be rewarding to pursue. And so they'll come to me for that. Or that not only will be there'll be a message or a business, but that expression has some a spiritual potency, a spiritual purpose to it that is meant to ex express itself in all their relationships, whether it's leadership in their family or leadership in their business or leadership in their community or on, in the world, or it's supposed to come out as a book or a talk or whatever. And so where these come coalesce is that desire to, here's this experience and it's supposed to be in service, of service somehow. And the expressions in between are as varied as the number of people, a business, a family, a, a, a lecture, a talk, a book, a, a coaching program, whatever it may be. And having done many of those things, books, programs, coaching programs, uh, radio shows, all that, I can help them find their way. Do you mind going to that framework of how you help people find the story that they want to tell? Because we're human beings, right? And Chances are people that have come to you have lived multiple lives before they encounter you. They can talk about probably a lot of different things. How did you help them find the one thing that really gets to the core, the truth of who they are, and then help them express and illustrate and add color to it and then make the kind of impact that they want to make? Hmm. We try to avoid using the word formula, for instance. Sure. Because there is a science to communication. We know that while the words are super important, they're also only 8% or 6%, depending on who you ask, of a communication experience, a, a transaction. 93%, as many as 94% of a communication is the tone, the inflection, the body language, the positioning, you know, da, 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 da. the context, the environment, et cetera. And so there is a little bit of a science to it. And yet it's some the effectiveness of communication. Your what might be super effective in yielding results for you, I could do it exactly the same way and completely fall flat. And so holding someone, remember that discomfort of the learning experience, holding someone in that, which is probably why me being a good encourager helps, because a lot of the path it kind of feels crappy, but holding someone in that you, you're doing it, you're doing great. All that judgment that's coming up, it's not true. It's just a feeling. It's your inner child feeling judged. You got them, you can do this. All of that, the psychology of it and everything comes into play. 
And so the what's really fun for me is not so much, oh, apply this formula, first A, then B, then C, then D, but discovering on a case-by-case basis when I'm working intimately with somebody, what's your formula? It might be A, D, C, B, now. So, so yeah. I'm not so much to ask for a step-by-step per se. Yeah. I just want to understand how your mind works if when you meet someone new and say, hey, tell me this and that, and you can continue to go into deeper and deeper level of what they're trying to say. Okay, that's a good question. <laughs> Let me give me a second to drop in here. And really sure. It's a good question. So why you think, let me just contextualize it as to whoever is watching this. So guys, so I'm asking George here, I want, I'm curious to know about his metacognition, how he thinks about this. And this is not unlike to ask an artist, you know, Hey, how do you paint a great piece of art? So I'm certainly not asking him to mechanistically describe how he does it, but I'm curious to know how he approaches this such that we can learn from his thought process as well. As we're sharing our own story, how do we actually get to the core of the truth of what we're trying to articulate? So, yeah, there's a piece about understanding what makes us tick, like helping you understand what makes you tick includes, I'm going to use you as an example, okay? Mm -hmm. That if we were you wanted to give a talk, for instance, or develop a program, a teaching program, or, a, or an online program, or just a talk, that getting to know you in such a way that I understand why, not just, not just your why, this is a distinction that we teach, not just your why, but why you. What is it about your experience? What is it about CK's life arc that makes it important for you to share what you want to share. That piece, like you might say, it's important to me because I care about human humanity and sharing ideas positively influences humankind, which is true and beautiful and inspiring. And yet that next layer of why you, why is it important? What, what happened to you that made the sharing ideas meaningful to you. And it could be, my guess is, that you shared earlier that people told you, I can't handle your questions, so stop being curious. Now, human nature is such that that would imprint upon you an importance. Wait a second, I know this doesn't feel right. So this little version of CK is like, you're stifling me doesn't feel right. And so I'm going to lock that away and say, I know this doesn't feel good, but the curiosity felt good. So I'm going to be purposeful in my curiosity. And look what happens. Lifetime, life experience of, after life experience says, hush, stop asking so many questions. And yet this spark remains unextinguished, still burns. And now you have the wherewithal as an adult, as a conscious sovereign being to do something about it. Nobody can stop you and say, don't be curious. You say, F you, I'm going to be curious and I'm going to go on the internet and turn on the and I'm going to be curious. Yeah. That to me 
your that's your why and why you all at once. And yeah. you can't stop that. Life can't stop. That is your flame burning. And if you, as long as you're connected to that first, the how, the points you want to teach, the slideshow or the video or the, all the specific hows are gravy. If you're yeah. really tuned into your why and why you, the rest is details. We can we can build a slideshow. We can build a curriculum. We can build a framework around that and have you remember what you want to talk. We can do the exercises that will drive that point home. We can find the right words. All of that stuff is secondary mm. to your knowing why you. I love that. Thank you. So let me recap what you just said, okay? So one, my wife taught me that, by the way, I got to give her credit. She taught me, I was always talking about the why, what's your why, what's your why, which is important as we've demonstrated, yeah. but that why you such a sweet, sublime, brilliant, extra layer. For sure. So the number one thing is identify my why as in, why do I want to talk about it? Not from the intellectual point of view, but from the vis you know, visceral point of view. I, I, I feel good when I get curious as using myself as an example. I don't know why. It doesn't matter why. I can go you know, psychoanalyze myself to death. I, I'm just a curious person. So one. And the second layer that you talked about is why me? What is the origin story of why I'm curious? And I can share my childhood days got shunned, turned into a weakness rather than an asset, and a pivotal story along the way, found a path podcast as a way to now channel my curiosity in a positive, productive, synergistic, value-driven way. Here's my hero's journey. Did I hear that accurately? You did, and perfectly. And why that's important is because people can relate to you that way. When you say, when you said, my teacher said, stop asking those questions. I felt your pain. I felt, yeah, I had teachers tell me to shut up too. That, that feels crappy. We, we're brothers instantly because of that. If someone hears that and they hear, oh yeah, I've had that experience. It might not be the same exact thing. It might not be the teacher. It could have been their boss or their spouse or their parent, but they can relate to that experience. At least the people who will be drawn to you will relate to that experience. Beautiful. Cool. Thank you so much. So these are the seedlings that you help your clients find, and then you help them creating infrastructures, scaffolding to help them, the trees grow and bear fruits in the end. And then ta-da, here's the TED talk that I always want to say have the impact I want to have. Yeah? Yes. That's yeah. beautiful. Do you want to talk a little bit about community? Because I know that you're deeply into men's work, relationship work as well, in addition to the individual work that you do with clients. You want to talk a yeah. little bit about that? Sure. I'd love to. It, and so I'll just share broadly. And if there's something and specific comes up, just fire away. Sure. The, the, we recognize that Tracy and I teach this thing called the integrated leadership sweet spot. And what it is, you've got the languaging, the outward expression that you, the way you lead in the world, who you show up as in the world. And then you've got the inner experience, which is largely, we talked earlier about the conditioning, how our nervous system records information and, and, and how, what meaning we make of it. 
And then the third piece is this structures of support. How do we support and create the conditions around us that support our being our fullest expression in the world? And community is such an important part of that. You know, there's all sorts of research that indicates that the 10 people you hang out with the most or invest the most time with, if you average their annual incomes, you'll approximate your income, for instance. And the social dialogue, for instance, the, the conversation, the things you talk about the most, if you polled the people you spend the most time with, that will approximate what you talk about the most. So community, the people you invest time with, actually play a huge role in influencing who you are in the world. And I think largely people are not conscious of that fact. They take a lot for granted. I know I do. I don't think about it all the time, but I know when I think about it, oh yeah, the people, that's why, <laughs> that's why like you get to a certain point in your life where you actually choose who you hang out with. You actually choose, not by saying, oh, you're not good enough. I'm not going to be your friend anymore. It just happens that where you want to go will determine over time the people you hang out with, the people you socialize with, the people you rely on for support and encouragement, the people you seek advice from will change if you're, on, if you're conscious of the path you're on. So I'll share this with you and then you can you know, reflect back what criteria that you use. So for me, I think about, yes, the average of the five people I spend the most time with. I also think about the network of conversations, right? What kind of conversations we tend to have uh, topically. So that's something that I'm very conscious about and what I'm interested in. For example, what lifestyle do we all aspire to have? So if you want to make you work 20 hours a day until you have a billion dollar business and exit and you can do it again. That's not the kind of conversation that I enjoy having. I've lived that lifestyle as no longer something that interests me per se, but I'm more about, you know, this soulful life of fulfillment and joy and success all at the same time. That's something that I want to engage in. So I'm curious to know what criteria do you use as a way to consciously and intentionally cultivate these network of conversation that you want to have? Yeah, thank you. And I love that you use the word, the conversations, because Tracy and I are passionate about that. We really truly believe that the conversations of elevating the level of the conversations that we're having has a positive impact in the world. I think I shared with you when we first met that our stated vision, our stated purpose is to lead enough conversation leaders. You know, there's a lot of talk in the world about thought leadership. We want to create conversation leaders to elevate the vibrational frequency of conversations in the world to the so potently, so to such an extent that the artificial intelligence is actually infected by love. That's our mission. And so this idea uh, of criteria, I would say that we naturally gravitate. I, I naturally gravitate toward people who, for whom their spiritual path is important to them. It doesn't have to be like their most important thing. It's just when I'm talking about my spiritual journey, almost invariably, I'm going to talk about my experiences relative to that. And that's either interesting to someone or it's not. And if it's not interesting, 
are we really going to have that much in common? Perhaps paradoxically, I'm also fascinated by how that expresses itself in the commercial world through businesses and through speaking and training and, and this and that. So it's interesting to me to see how wealth and prosperity and abundance is interwoven in, into all of that. How it is that someone can be deeply spiritual and wildly financially abundant. That's fascinating to me. It doesn't appear to me to be hypocritical. That's true. Although there are many examples where it is. Right? Who, who would be an example of that? I'm curious. Who is openly spiritual and also do very well in the material world? Not to put yourself on the spot. I'm no, just curious. Because yeah, you know, that's something that I think about, right? Who can I point to and say, hey, has certain celebrity or whatever. Yeah. Look at them as an example. Yeah. Yeah. I know all of the people I hang out with and Tracy and I hang out with fit in that category. And so I, I don't want to, I don't want to name names, but I, I do know. So let's say if I had to pick a, a celebrity, someone who I have a, for whom I have a great deal of respect, I've met him a few times and had conversations, his book, ageless body, timeless mind for me, change just integrated with my philosophy and knowledge of biology. Deepak Chopra is a great example. Someone who, by everything I've seen, and again, I don't hang out with him on a daily basis, but everything I've seen, he's a deeply spiritual person and he's very successful financially. And I've never really talked to anybody who, who hasn't had that experience. I, there are colleagues, people I know who that's not true. They may be wildly successful and they might proclaim spirituality, but they don't totally live that vibe. That to me is troublesome. We don't hang out. So for me, walking the walk and talking the talk is really important, even when that's hard. So curious to know also in terms of cultivating a relationship that works. Tracy and you guys are deeply immersed in the work of, of individually as well as relationship-wise. Are there tools of relationships that you've come across that you say, hey, this is really useful to cultivate a conscious relationship. For example, some people may say, hey, David Data's work is awesome, or radical honesty is fantastic, or conscious leadership you know, framework is phenomenal, right? All those are different tools that one could use as a way to cultivate two egos coming together to foster this third entity called a marriage or a relationship. I love that you even brought attention to that third entity. I think that's super important, recognizing that, that when a relationship is formed, the relationship itself has its own needs and uh, requirements for maintenance, maintenance. And oftentimes there's also a loss of individual sovereignty that when someone merges with another, they feel like they no longer have the right to their own sovereignty, which I think is a, is a loss, a great loss for both partners, the relationship as well as the world. Because in order to, in my experience, after a, a, a failed first marriage and, and so far a successful second marriage and really passionately working with couples who are particularly on purpose together. We call it partnership in purpose. And what this attention to respecting the needs of two sovereign individuals, critical. And so, the, and then attention to the needs of the partnership. 
require what we call occasional uncomfortable conversations, difficult conversations need to be navigated because agreements need to be expressed. There's so many, we go into relationships with so many assumptions. And so there's a whole set of axia that we could quote. But the, the one piece is that I would say is the willingness to have uncomfortable conversations so that the sovereignty of each individual is respected always. And one of the, one of the things that often is so problematic for couples, especially, maybe not especially, I was going to say especially newly coupled people, but it's not true. It, it, people could be with each other 20 years and still have old patterns come up. And so we have this saying here in our household that it's not the partner, it's the pattern. And so when I'm frustrated with Tracy or she's frustrated with me, chances are good that it's not really the thing I did that annoys her so much. It's the thing I did triggered an old pattern that feels true for her. For instance, I might do something and she might go into the pattern of you don't respect me because that's a wound or an old experience or an old pattern that, that she might have or i might she might do something and i might go into reaction and think you're disrespecting me or you're not you've, you're criticizing me because that's an old pattern and a wound for me and when we recognize if we get a, a tiny moment of clarity oh it's not the partner it's the pattern I'm not actually annoyed at Tracy, my best friend and my beloved. I'm annoyed that things she did with no intention of disrespecting me triggered my feeling of being disrespected, which are totally different experiences. If I can get enough of a moment of freedom from the pattern, from the reaction to recognize that's true, or one of us can, if one of us can get there and recognize it's not the partner it's the pattern, then we give each other a chance to navigate our way through it without it blowing up or recovering from it blowing up, which happens. Do you, yeah. so tactically, I want to put his boots on the ground. Tactically, do you, when you get into that state, both sides are triggered or one side is triggered and that triggers the other side, which happens a lot. If you're in any kind of relationship that this happens. Part of the, the choice that you made, which is yeah. the beautiful part as well. So do you then say time out? I'm going to call, take some time, meditate by myself, and then I'll come back when I'm neutralized and ready, or you're going to time out. Let me go call my friend, my sponsor or whatever. And then just like vent, you know, I purge everything or yeah. hey, time out. Let's, let's call a, a arbitrator, a therapist, so they can hold that space of neutrality. So tactically, what do you do in, the, in those moments? So great. We, this is, first of all, I want to say for two things. One, I want to really appreciate you constantly bringing us back to boots on the ground. It's, I, I really admire that and it's valuable. The second thing is I want to say it's an ongoing process. This relationship it requires is a commitment in my experience that all of the examples of long-term healthy, nurturing relationships. Everyone acknowledges that it's a work in progress. Very rarely have I heard, oh yeah, we've been together for 50 years and it's been effortless, right? I, anyone, that, 
anyone that ever said those words to me, I like automatically in my mind, I'm like, bullshit. <laughs> you just wrote it right away. I'm aware enough to know that's just not how life works. The beauty of a relationship, of being in business, of self-work is in the highest of high and the lowest of lows. There's, there is no, we're just in constant ascent, ecstasy. 20, I just, I've never met an authentic person like that. So I, I don't believe it when somebody tells that's me that. Brilliant. I mean, if it's true, God bless you. If you found that, wow, awesome. I'm not even going to bother asking what's the secret because I know I wouldn't be able to duplicate it. And, so, yeah. and, and it would be uninteresting. It would yeah. be uninteresting. Oh, you found the perfect partner and everything's wonderful and peaceful all the time. That's completely uninteresting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's work. It, it you are, you are, you're much more generous than I am. Yes. <laughs> I. I wouldn't want to talk ill of someone thousands <laughs> of people are listening. Yeah, yeah. No, good point. Good point. Yeah. No, so yeah. so first of all, it, it requires commitment. And and to go into any to go into something as profound as a long-term relationship, as a marriage or a partnership, with an expectation that it will be ease, completely effortless, it just sets yourself up. You're set, setting yourself up for disappointment and conflict. So that's one. And the second thing is, yes, the, I, the objective is always to get to peace. Tracy and I feel like we, we have a philosophy that love is always looking for itself. And so even in conflict, it's love trying to find its way back to itself through the other person. And so if that's the case, if I can remember that, it's much easier. Oh, I know you didn't mean to trigger me. I know you're just wanting to connect with me, but I'm so triggered by that. Ideally, I would have the self-awareness to, to step through that. And I get there. But oftentimes, that's the power of the trigger is that's the point. I can't get there because my conscious self is, is offline. My reaction is online. And the, the key for Crazy and I is the first person to become aware of it, the first ego to leave the room. You know what I mean? Not physically, but energetically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, we've heard it say, who wants to be the hero? We, we heard Evan Pagan and his wife, Annie, just shared that with us recently. The first person to, who wants to be the hero. And, and what's really beautiful about that is I, I might not consciously want to be the hero, but when I become aware that, oh, shit, I went into reaction. And I, this is my beloved just trying to connect with me. She may be having a reaction. She's not trying to trigger me purposely, whatever, that if, it hap if I get aware of that first, I will try to breathe and I'll just stop like being aggressive with my energy. And I'll just say, hold on, what do you need? What is it that you need? And, and the energy will either shift immediately or very shortly after that. Like there may still be some vehemence in the pipeline that has to come out and then it'll be like, oh, you're trying. Like, oh, you're trying. Okay, I'll stop. And, and we take turns doing that, honestly. So it's mm -hmm. not always me who gets there first. It's not always Tracy who gets there first. And that grace, there's like a moment, we call it peace in the interval. So mm. it's the first person to become aware, oh, there's an interval here. There's aggression in the space. 
But if I can bring peace to this, I can stop this. And the first person to bring peace in the interval will usually stop it. So I have a, I have a, a question. There's, there's multiple, obviously there's no one right way to do it, but just multiple schools of thought, right? So one school of thought is, hey, the couples will process each other, trying to be that space holder for each other's humanity and whatever they need to say to vent all the excess energy to get back to love. So that's one school of thought. Another school of thought is actually have some kind of buffer, <clears throat> some kind of a release valve. Let's say men will have like his men's group or women will have their women's group. So then they get to vent, get back to neutrality before coming back to sovereignty again. Uh, I'm curious to know what's your take on that. Should, should like, yeah, how, how do you guys operationalize? Do you have your own release valve before come back to neutral again? Or do you do your best to just do it yourself without the help of a men's group or a women's group? Yeah, that's a great question. Because until you develop, until the individual develops a sense of age, a facility with a particular strategy for getting back to neutral, it is so valuable to have the help of somebody not in the partnership. Because somebody not in the partnership won't come to that question with all that charge. The, the men's group or a therapist or a coach or a best friend who's on call or text like, I need to get this off my chest or whatever is super helpful because we always say, Tracy and I, you can't, your husband or, or wife can't be your therapist. It, it's just too, it's fraught with familiarity breeds contempt. It's fraught with taking the sizzle out of a relationship. If, I, if, if we have to coach each other, if I, if we, if I've done, if I've just vented life's frustrations at my wife, am I going to want to make love with her afterwards? Or is she going to want to make love with me? Is that, or what will we have to go through to purge that out of the space before we can create intimacy again? So it doesn't feel great to be that, but I'll say, mm -hmm. Once you get good, good at moving that energy, we, we might say, Tracy and I will say, I'm going to take five minutes or 10 minutes or an hour. I've got to go move this. I don't want to direct it towards you. And I don't necessarily need to call my buddy, but I might call my buddy. Oftentimes, I, if I go into meditation, I will so very quickly, and I'm no saint, it sometimes takes me quite a while. I can regain responsibility and be like, oh my God, I totally see how I did that. I took it off the rails. I own it. I go back, owning it, and we reconnect. And I've been at it a while. I've been doing the work a long time. So at first, it may take a lot of support, which is, again, where mentorship, community, structured for support in that regard. For instance, we have what we call a council. We have two other couples whom, with whom we counsel every week, the six of us. And we have made agreements amongst the six of us to hold each other's relationship as a very high priority. So if Tracy and I are in conflict, for instance, we'll go to that council and say, help us sort this out. And holding the relationship as the most important, the other couples will ask in and will support each other that way. That has been brilliant 
And, mm. yeah. Yeah. How did you pick those two other couples out of curiosity? And then I asked this question more metacognitively, right? Is let's say someone listening to this and that sounds like a fantastic idea. Let me just go down the street and pick random two couples. Yeah. I'm so facetious, but that's the natural, like people want the easiest way to, to get this done. I know that it doesn't work. So what are some of the criteria to select the right space yeah. for your sacred marriage? It's a great, a great question. It, it, the, the shortest answer is two other couples who hold their marriage as sacred as we hold ours. That's the shortest answer. Now yeah. for us, we have, it, it's a little involved. We, these happen to be the two couples with whom we invest the most time. We are all in similar industries. We all serve similar clientele. So we have very similar paths. We're authors and speakers and coaches and business people. We've also really the process of the way we support each other. We have invested in articulating and codifying and we've created a, a community around it. It's called Eden World. And it's a beautiful community of other couples, like-minded couples, who desire to be in conversation with like-minded couples to support one another. And Eden World, for instance, was born out of the relationship of the six of us supporting each other's couplehood, coupleness, coupledom. Oh, no kidding. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow, that's great, man. And so now literally hundreds of people in a similar conversation, meeting virtually, now virtually, and pairing off into groups of th uh, six, three couples, supporting one another as councils. Our council, we meet every week. We, we enjoy that. That's actually what started. Like we saw the profound nature of that conversation. And we said, we need to share this technology with people. And uh, Eden World was born. I love that. What a difference yeah. we get to make for generations to come. I, I feel the truth of that. And we just had a gathering this past weekend, a virtual gathering. I saw yeah. that. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Thank you for hopping on this podcast in spite of the long weekend that you just had. Oh, no. How much energy it takes to hold the event and hold that space for people. So thank you. Well, it's also, don't you feel that, I, I call it investing myself on purpose. Don't you feel that it, it may be physically tiring, like being supporting people and doing this, hosting podcasts and all this but it's also recharging all oh. the time. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm the biggest fan of my own podcast. I listen to my podcast multiple times. That's awesome. I love, <laughs> that, you I, I love that you shared that with me, first of all. Um, that's awesome because I like, I totally get what you mean. It's not egoic. It's no. not, oh, aren't I great? Listen to me. No, it's, it's not. I yeah. love it. I, 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 was, then I, I could be at the position of a listener rather than the host and actually listen it differently. Every time I listen, it's like, oh, this guest actually said this thing. I misinterpreted it on the call, but now I can hear the depth of what they are trying to say, etc. Beautiful. I love it. I love that you shared it. And it would, it would be weird if you didn't want to. Not weird, whatever. That's judgment too. But the fact that you want to listen to it is like it says... You're as much interested in in it as you are creating it. It's not a exercise of your ego, so to speak. So let me go a little bit deeper on the couples dynamics here. So again, let's use sparring as an example, as a, as an analog, right? So some people believe, some couples believe that no holds bar, no rules, 
let's just fight it out, right? No mask, no mystery, the truth. Radical honesty is basically in that camp, right? Just everything lay on the table. That's my interpretation of radical honesty. Anyway. Sure. Some other schools of thought is, no, you want to maintain that polarity, keep your mask on. You don't want to show everything. So that way you can keep that polarity and maintain and cultivate that the space of safety, right? That's a line you don't cross. You don't take your mask off and make the partner, your woman feel unsafe. So curious to know your thoughts using sparring as an example, is it no holds barred, everything lay on the mat, right? <laughs> or some rules or more like boxing, lots of rules and nobody hits below the belt. Like where, where are you in that spectrum? For me, the idea of, so this is, this feels very personal. Uh, for me, the idea of sparring with my beloved feels a little incongruent. For instance, energy, just for me, I, it may be valuable to, for two people who can embody that energetic safely, mm -hmm. uh, that may be very healthy, for instance, mm -hmm. even in not just in conversing about relationship dynamic, but even in sexually, that dynamic might be fun and, and, and entertaining for someone who can hold that energetic safely. And that, that's really important because for me, if I come with warrior energy, if my beloved isn't in her warrior energy, for instance, if she's in reaction or which is likely if we're fighting, if we're arguing, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If she's in her wound then she's expressing a, a very young version of herself you know mm -hmm. just as in my wound it's my six-year-old throwing a tantrum i'm not getting what i want or you're not listening to me or you're not valuing me or i'm feeling less about myself or i'm feeling unworthy if she's in her wound for instance in her five-year-old girl and i come to her as warrior that could be a terrifying experience and i wouldn't want to create that experience for my beloved mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And does that resonate? Yeah. And totally. so, yeah. Now that you're talking about it, perhaps that's not the best analogy. <laughs> it may be really healthy if we're both in our warrior and it's, we have to vent this. Like I know a couple, for instance, he's just a loving, kindest guy and very rarely will he lose his temper and mm -hmm. his wife has fire in her. And when she brings her warrior, he doesn't know how to handle that sometimes. And what he'll do is what he's learned is meet the warrior with his warrior mm. and they wrestle mm. and they're both phys physical expressors. So when they wrestle, it will often very quickly end up as real connection and intimacy mm. and they'll they'll find each other looking each other's eyes and they'll break down into each other's arms and it'll be quite beautiful mm. but if, if she brings her warrior and he doesn't it's not pretty and if he brings his warrior and she doesn't she gets hurt and so if the warriors can meet as warriors it sounds like it might be healthy to move all that energy and just express it and have it out other, other than lock it up in our tissues, that could, that wouldn't be healthy, but it would, would have to be a very intentional mm -hmm. thing because yeah, it just, there, there's a lot when people's hearts are involved there, you have to tread lightly, tread carefully, intentionally.
So are there archetypes? Okay, so let's say the warrior sparring is not the best metaphor per se. Are there archetypes that would help our listeners, that would help me understand how to meet the different energy? So for example, the king, magician, warrior, say, or whatever, I forgot the fourth uh, archetype, right? That would be similar archetypes. So you meet them where they're at, perhaps. Right. So w well, what is the archetype that you use mentally? Yeah, there, this is actually, this is a great question because at this, depending on who you ask, there may be four archetypes, there may be 10, there may be five, but I know that it really depends on each other's patterns. If, mm. if my pattern is to get really defensive and aggressive and my partner's pattern is to hide and escape, who I bring to the conversation mm. or who I give the microphone to, we, we like to say, who's got the mic, you mm. know, is, is it that little inner child who who is going to express in different ways, uh, or is it my conscious self and very methodical and data-driven? This doesn't make any sense, and this is, you know, the data supports this. Or is it my highest self, this divine spiritual aspect of me that realizes that we're both just love and trying to find our way back to each other? The archetypes, yeah, archetypes in and of themselves aren't really my jam, but, but I can share that king for instance when i'm in my king i don't take things personally i don't take tracy's upset personally i take it personally that i want to care for her and i want to connect with her but i don't take what she's saying as a criticism of me because if i'm in my king i'm confident and certain of my truth and who i am and there are other archetypes that i'm a little i'm not as familiar with i don't play with magician as much i don't play with jester as much and again warrior is something for me i explore in other contexts like i explore with my men friends we explore warrior uh, a lot because it feels safer to do so with each other than it does with my partner does that make sense because i i don't want to i don't want to experiment with my rage necessarily with tracy yeah yeah uh, because I want her to feel safe, unless she's ready to hold that space, which she can hold it beautifully if I prepare her for that. You know? Yeah, it's beautiful. Thank you for that. George, do you, I, do you have a few minutes for some rapid fire and then we'll wrap? Is that cool? I do, sure, yeah. Awesome. I can't believe like we're wrapping up already. Like I've been so enjoying this conversation with you, brother. Thank you. I appreciate that. High, high praises from, from Master Coach George. Okay, rapid fire questions. Movies have changed the way you look at reality. I Heart Huckabees, What the Bleep Do We Know, Goodfellas, Rudy. Beautiful. Thank Any you. Any given Sunday. Yeah. Any given Sunday. So lots of sports, football. Sports yeah. I love that. What's your definition of purpose? That thing you can't not do. What's your definition of fulfillment? <laughs> Grace for yourself, knowing that you've invested your time and energy and resources serving your purpose. Thank you. What's your definition of wealth? 
the my definition of wealth, the inverse of regret. I like that. No one has ever answered that question with the inverse before. <laughs> yeah, by contrast, I, it's like yeah. wealth is, a, yeah, I, I could talk about that for a long time. That's a, a great question. In the last five years, what new beliefs, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? Four years ago, I was told that leukemia that I thought was gone for my life forever had returned to my body. And that the best course of action would, would, was to immediately return to the hospital for a seven day, 24 hour infusion of chemotherapy, which knowing what I had gone through before was, it's an unpleasant experience. It's painful and scary and yeah, hard knowing going into that i was grateful that i had developed and maintained a meditation practice so the discipline the habit was reinforced that my habit of meditation had served me well because i went into the hospital immediately and began meditating. We brought in the Sofagio tone music and played that in my room 24 hours a day. I meditated on the chemotherapy. My wife and I would pray over the medicine when they brought it in before they hooked it up to my machine every day. We prayed on the medicine and we said, this is light. Literally, we know from the quantum physics of it, that this medicine is light and it enters my body with the sole purpose of healing and we know that light can transform darkness into light and so let this body come in let this medicine come into my body bring light to the dark places and heal me and had i not had that practice of meditation and prayer i don't know that i would have met that moment with so much resourcefulness that's beautiful i love that you could do that with anything really the day, right food drink we do journal we do, we do with everything yeah that's true thank you for that that's really practical thank you uh, thank you other than your own books what is the book or the books that you've given most as a gift and why great question love this question the books i've given most as a gift Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill and The Science of Getting Rich by Wallace Waddles. And, I, and why is not because they have, they're talking about money, but because they're talking about being a particular way. They're so passionate about it, actually, that since the book, The Science of Getting Rich is in the public domain, this just this past six months during COVID, I undertook to rewrite the science of getting rich mm. and I'm publishing it soon under the new science of getting rich. And that'll be really soon. I'm so passionate about the way of being that is advocated that I've given. I can't even, I've given hundreds of copies of that book. Wow. Yeah. What's now that you open up with that, what's one thing that's being taught in the book that really just this book gets it. What's one thing that no other books have, you know, covered? I love, yeah. I love the question. 
because there is a lot of conversation in the social consciousness about the law of attraction, mm-hmm. this idea that what we think about is made manifest in the physical world, which is true. I'm certain of the truth of that. When the conversation around the law of attraction and manifesting and vision boards and all this stuff, what is missing that this book addresses, why I'm so passionate about it, is the idea that our prayers are not answered while we're praying. Our prayers are answered, and using the word prayer very broadly in a non-religious sense, when we're working with the feeling of fulfillment in our heart. Mm. And that neither the prayer is the thing that manifests it, nor is the work the thing that manifests it, but rather the feeling of accomplishment that we hold in our heart while we're working. Mm, mm. That one piece, that the feeling is the transmission. The feeling is the request to the universe. The feeling of complete fulfillment. And why that's so important is because it touches on a truth that I believe with every cell in my body, that Mm. nothing outside of us is the source of our fulfillment. No money, no person, no place, no condition. Mm. That the fulfillment of our desires resides in the desire itself and the desire itself resides within us. What a beautiful way to wrap it. You essentially summarize why my focus on the experience of joy and fulfillment in the work that we do versus chasing the achievement. Some people find their satisfaction in the chase. To me, that's vacuous, that's empty. It doesn't lead to a place, but an experience of fulfillment and joy while during whatever task at hand is the source of wealth and riches. So beautifully said, and I love how you said the chase is vacuous because the problem or the challenge with that is as long as you're chasing, everything is great. But the moment you stop chasing, it's empty again. And the and true fulfillment I believe, and just like true wealth, is this to be sustainable, is really it exists when you're stopping too. Because that, oh yes, my gratitude, the gratitude I hold in my heart, I'm holding it there whether I'm doing or sleeping or playing or whatever. And so I love that description that you just shared. Beautiful. George, I want to take a minute to just truly acknowledge you for sharing your heart you know, sharing your energetic transmission with all of us. It's palpable on this end that you just nothing but have love and support for anyone who is on the journey. And uh, thank you so much for sharing. We tackle many different subjects, right? We tackle the tension between you know, adversity versus grateful. And then we tackle, we, we, we talked about rather uh, the relationship dynamics, right? The community aspect of it. And we also talked about what it actually takes to fulfill our the desire is in the experience of gratitude and fulfillment that actually sends that transmission in manifesting our desire. So thank you so much for just willing to dance with me. It's been an absolute pleasure. So enjoyed it. Hope we'll do it again. Absolutely. Thank you so much.